Today on the Orthodox Ethos Podcast, we present Lesson 3 from our lecture series on Orthodox Ecclesiology. The topic of today's lesson is St. Basil the Great, St. Augustine, and the response to Nestorius. This podcast was originally recorded in March of 2021. Thank you for joining us, and God bless you. This is going to be focused on the fourth century. We've, we've covered the uh, scriptural passages. We've covered the first couple centuries, the major topics related with questions of ecclesiology. And now we're going to be looking at the fourth century, a little bit into the fifth. And we're going to be focusing largely on the person of St. Basil the Great, who plays a towering, is a towering figure and plays a massive role in our understanding of the church, the boundaries of the church, the nature of the church. Let me say from the outset that we are focusing in this class, uh, we are focusing uh, literally and <laughs> figuratively, we're focusing on uh, the the questions that have that pertain to the church today. In other words, we're looking at the ancient church, we're looking at the questions of ecclesiology, uh, precisely to help us understand uh, some of the things we're facing today. So this is as much a theological analysis, historical analysis, much less more a pastoral approach to what the faithful need to know today to protect themselves from delusion and heresy and to save their souls. And this is uh, this is always the way I think that the Holy Father's approaches. What we're trying to do here is that we're interested in what is needful for the salvation of the faithful? Uh, so that is that is what is most important. All right. So that's that's the nature. That's the purpose of this course. It's not just to go through and uh, look at the aspects of church history. It's not just to go through and look at aspects of our ecclesiology. But it's to focus on those questions, those key questions, which uh, are very important for us today. <clears throat> and uh, who are, are burning questions for people in our day, in the 21st century. So let's, um, let's say our prayers and chant our Triparian for the Feast of, the, um, of Pentecost, and then we'll get, right into, uh, we'll get right into the course. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind, with the pure light of the divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. And plant also fear with thy blessed commandments, to trample down all kind of desires. We may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing things as well pleasing unto thee, without the illumination of our souls and bondage of Christ our God. And the use of glory, the Lord Father, Holy Good, my creating spirit, both now and ever, and to ages of ages. Amen. Ebloyitosi Christeon Theon Simon O Pansophus Tus alisanadixas Catapemsas aftis to pneuma Toa 
Αγίων και Θεία Αυτών την οικουμένης αγκινεύσας Amen. <clears throat> so, we're in lesson three of ten, and this is going to be focusing on the great figure of St. Basil the Great, mostly, but also we'll get a little bit into St. Augustine. We'll continue with him in next session. And we'll talk also, if we have time, about the church's response to the Nestorius, which is very in, in interesting and instructive in terms of our ecclesiology. Uh, but we're going to be focusing on the fathers that bridge between, uh, time-wise, between St. Cyprian and uh, St. Um, Basil. And then we'll talk about St. Basil's uh, very important contribution in Canon 1 and Canon 47. So let's start and let's ask this question, very important question, which a lot of people want to ask and want to answer. And that is, was St. Cyprian's ecclesiology that of the early church? And was it adopted by the church fathers after him, such as St. Basil? So we looked in the last session pretty extensively at St. Cyprian's uh, major points in, term, in terms of the question of the baptism and the boundaries of the church. Uh, we looked at uh, St. Familian, St. Dionysios. We looked at uh, the, the fathers that preceded him, the councils that preceded him, St. Ignatius of Antioch, of course, one of the major figures, the foundational figures for ecclesiology, the object of many studies in the 20th century because of this age and this day being the, the day of, of study in ecclesiology. This is the, this is the, uh, this is the, the question of the day, as, as was the question of Christ and his divinity and humanity in the fourth century today is the question of the, the divinity, humanity, the nature of the church. And so many people are asking these questions and looking, if you look at those Holy Fathers, you can find it's certainly the Orthodox uh, belief, the, the Holy Fathers uh, and the commentaries today, that you find continuity between St. Ignatius, the Holy Fathers, the Apostles, our Lord himself, as we presented in the first course, and the, uh, the, the outlook, the basic Christological and ecclesiological outlook of St. Uh, Cyprian. But this is a question that needs to be answered thoroughly because it is, it is challenged, it is doubted, it is questioned uh, by not a few today. Uh, so before we, before we arrive at St. Augustine, who is a unique and uh, really set apart in, from other Holy Fathers in terms of his thoughts on how the, the boundaries, uh, where the boundaries are, how the boundaries are, and how baptism works outside among the heterodox. Um, before we arrive there, we have the Holy Fathers like St. Basil. Uh, so great question is whether or not the Holy Tradition and theological vision of the Church, which as we've seen is common to the Fathers of the first three centuries, is shared and continued in the fourth century, whether, whether there's a break. Is there an introduction of a new theological vision? Will the Church of Alexandria, the Church of Asia Minor, continue in the outlook of St. Dionysius and St. Fermilion? Uh, is there a clear line connecting the mind of the Fathers before Nicaea with those after, which is still traceable for us today? And that's a question that we'll 
approach. I don't know if we'll answer it fully, but that's certainly what we'll try to do. First of all, we'll start again. We'll repeat something we've said before, but it's important. And it's a very uh, important observation that was made by an important figure in 20th century uh, uh, academic circles in Greece and in the Orthodox Church. Uh, And this thesis that he wrote, uh, Metropolitan John Zizoulis' thesis, Eucharist Bishop and Church, the unity of the church in the, in, the, in the divine Eucharist and the bishop during the first three centuries was uh, very important when it came out in the 60s, 70s. Uh, and <clears throat> he's played a major role in shaping a lot of people's thoughts on the church. So it's very weighty, uh, I think, what he has to say, and no one really disputes it. And that is that uh, between e- the, the, the figures of the third, third, third century who were dealing with this question, and mainly the ones we have the text and we have the the, 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 the uh, a witness from are Saint Cyprian uh, and the anonymous uh, author of the treatise on uh, rebaptism, which is identified as the same theology, same outlook that Saint Stephen uh, or Pope Stephen. It's really unclear, by the way. Somebody was questioning on Twitter last week. You know, why doesn't he? Re- why doesn't Father Peter refer to Stephen of Rome as Saint Stephen? It's unclear to me in our own Synexar, in our own collection line of saints, is if he is actually enrolled as a saint. You find him in some places, you don't find him in others. And then we find, I, I did some research and I found that after Vatican II, they've actually down somewhat, I don't know how to describe it, downgraded him. Uh, he was considered a, he was considered a, uh, um, a, a martyr, but now that seems to be questioned. He's not really considered a martyr. Uh, and his feast day is not what it used to be. So it's kind of, his person is a, a little bit obscured in terms of uh, the uh, Synaxaria, the collection of lives of the saints. So I'm not sure how to, how, to desc- how to describe it from an Orthodox perspective. There's not a lot of clarity, but I'm happy to say St. Stephen, if he is indeed recognized as a saint by the church. Uh, and St. Cyprian, uh, they all in agreement, he says, that both accept that the Holy Spirit is not given to those who are baptized outside the church. So that's not in debate. Some, some people want to make that a debate. They, they think this is a question. Uh, I don't think it's a question. There's no, there's no uh, counter argument there. There's no other witness in history in the third century to show us that actually uh, they were teaching that, the, that outside the church, the uh, they, they considered any of the Holy Fathers in the debate considered the Holy Spirit given. That's clear in the treatise on baptism by the anonymous author in North Africa. So Mr. Paul and John concludes this is the consciousness of the, of the churches in the middle of the third century. There's not, nothing to uh, witness to the contrary. So it's very, very important because, of course, <clears throat> that's not what is taught today in most ecumenical circles. It's not what's taught today by the uh, <clears throat> by the uh, uh, post-Vatican II Catholicism. Uh, they do believe that the uh, Holy Spirit is being given in all the baptisms performed by the various Christian denominations, including those outside uh, of the Roman Catholic Church. So th- that's a huge, uh, a huge matter. You know, it's not, a, it's not something that uh, we can overlook, or we can just say it doesn't really matter. So let's let's see what Father. Let's see what modern Orthodox scholars have to say about the question of is uh, the the ecclesiology of Saint Cyprian, the ecclesiology of the early Church, the ecclesiology of the Church throughout the centuries. 
Uh, and we have four or five quotes here from, from important uh, academic theologians in the latter half of the 20th century, which witnesses to the fact that they recognize that it is uh, not even a question, that it's assumed, rather, and understood that St. Cyprian's uh, ecclesiology is the ecclesiology, the basic ecclesiology, the form, not the pastoral economy or the theology, I'm about the ecclesiology of the Orthodox Church. And Father George Florovsky says <clears throat> here, the teaching of St. Cyprian as to the gracelessness of sex is the only the opposite side of his teaching about unity and communality. <clears throat> that is not the place, this is not the place at the moment to recollect and relate Cyprian's deductions and proofs. Each of us remembers and knows them, is bound to know them, is bound to remember them. They have not lost their force to this day. The historical influence of Cyprian was continuous and powerful. Strictly speaking, in its theological premises, the teaching of St. Cyprian has never been disproved. Even St. Augustine was not far from St. Cyprian. He argued with Adonatus, not with Cyprian himself, and did not try to refute Cyprian. Indeed, his argument was more about practical measures and conclusions. In his reasonings about the unity of the church, about the unity of love as a necessary uh, and decisive condition for the saving power of the sacraments, Augustine really only repeats Cyprian in new words. So that is uh, Father George Flavsky in, in an article, Limits of the Church, very important article for uh, in ecumenical circles, um, <clears throat> that, that really does delve into Augustine's thought and wants to see that as something that's going to be viable in the ecumenical movement, and he's exploring how that can be a bridge, basically. Uh, but from the very beginning of the article, he says, look, this is the basis, uh, this, is the, this, is, this is the given, that Cyprian's, the, Cyprian's theology has never been refuted, not even Augustine tries, even though I'm going to talk about Augustine in this article, we have to understand that it's on this basis that even, that, that even Augustine is, is, uh, is now, uh, you know, launching into a lot of nuance in his own way of looking at things. <clears throat> Let's look at now Richpano Calisos Ware in his very famous study of Estratio Sargenti. Uh, this is a study penned in the late 60s, if I'm not mistaken, early 70s is the most, and a very important study uh, which has, was influential in Greek uh, Orthodox circles for sure. And he, and he lays out uh, this important theologian of the of the 18th century, who influenced the Patriarchate of Constantinople immensely, uh, and his thought uh, was generally accepted and and has been accepted in the Greek Orthodox world uh, as representative of uh, Orthodox theology uh, at least up until uh, the late 20th century. It it was accepted, and that's the position that Metropolitan takes in his book, uh, although he has his own uh, cr critical remarks. But he says, as, as, as it pertains to St. Cyprian, the position of the Orthodox Church has been Cyprianic and non-Augustinian. Cyprianic view was taken for granted by most Greek writers of the 18th century. He's examining in his book, the 18th century. And the Cyprianic view is still followed by the standard Greek manuals of theology in use today. So this is the 1960s. Uh, so this is, you know, a major Western academic Orthodox thinker who's presented um, a lot on ecclesiology. He says this is the case. It's not debated. And then we have Metropolitan Hilarion Volokom Lamsk, who is a major uh, 
spokesman for Russian Orthodoxy, uh, very involved in the ecumenical movement. Uh, his comments here witness to the tradition other, in other places, unfortunately, there's some dissidence and, and confusion, uh, but here it's he's very clear and representing, I think, what uh, the others that I'm presenting uh, are representing as well, and that is that the Augustinian understanding of the efficacy of the sacraments was never fully accepted in the Orthodox Church. So the fact that Father Florovsky has to go into, in the 1930s, and go into a long uh, investigation into Augustinian thought is actually a proof that it was not a part of the Orthodox thinking for 19 centuries, or rather 15 centuries. Uh, he really, really was unknown for centuries and centuries among the Orthodox. His, his writings were not translated into Greek, so he could not have played a role. Uh, such an understanding of the sacraments is unacceptable for Orthodox tradition. That is the understanding of, of Blessed Augustine. Uh, for it is this, it is an understanding in which the grace inherent within them is considered autonomous, independent of the church. Sacraments can be performed only within the church, and it is the church that bestows efficacy, reality, and salvation on them. Now, that last comment is very, uh, I don't even like to use the term, but this is, you know, for uh, ease's sake, Cyprianic. You know, this is, this is, there is no Cyprianic ecclesiology. There's the Orthodox ecclesiology that St. Cyprian, as we showed in the last class, received and passed on. He was not an innovator. He was not uh, saying anything that he had not been received from his master, Tertullian, but also the church fathers who had uh, gathered in council just 40, 50 years before him. And, of course, he knew of the councils of the East. So Cyprian is presenting, is presenting what he understood and what he received to be Orthodox ecclesiology. It's not something uh, presented. Many times they presented it as something unique to him, something that he invented, something that he was an innovator. And he, he, he innovated in his outlook, which is very unfair to St. Cyprian, uh, because it's clear that he was appealing to tradition and history and the practice of his local church. Uh, the fact that Pope Stephen says, well, uh, this is an innovation, it's an innovation perhaps for the Church of Rome, but that's exactly the point. Is if, and, 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 and as you'll see in this class today, that's how St. Basil sees it. He sees it as, a, as an economy, as in other words, a temporary diversion from the norm in Rome, which is not what's practiced in other parts of the Church. Uh, so... Um, here we have a, a, a very good summary that autonomous, independent sacraments do not exist for the Orthodox. And that's a critique of Augustinian, the Augustinian view, which when we get into it later and in the next uh, class, you'll see uh, that that's an actually very accurate critique uh, of, of Augustinian thought. All right, let's keep going to uh, another witness of 20th century, 20, late 20th century, early 21st century orthodoxy, very important figure in French orthodoxy. This is Archimandre Placide de Sille, if I'm saying that right. He was a very important uh, uh, convert from Roman Catholicism. We'll talk about his reception in a minute. And he... Um, talks about this in a book produced by uh, higher monk Galitzin, now 
Bishop Galinton, who is the Bishop of the Diocese of the South and the Orthodox Church in America. This is in his book, uh, The Living Witness of the Holy Mountain, Contemporary Voices from Mount Athos. Uh, and it, he was a disciple. He became a disciple of uh, the great elder of Mount Athos, of Simona Petra Emilianos, who's now reposed. Uh, elder Emilianos uh, was his uh, spiritual father. They were received uh, by the monastery of Simona Petra on Mount Athos. Uh, and they were baptized. We'll see that in a second. But so he's he's a very important figure in contemporary Orthodox uh, monasticism in uh, the West, in, in France. And here's what he has to say concerning the uh, place of St. Cyprian and his theology. In the East, however, thanks especially to the influence of St. Basil, it's a very, very important point he makes, and I'll make again and again, uh, that actually St. Basil helped greatly to promote and share and continue in uh, the line uh, set down by not only St. Cyprian again, but all the church fathers, including St. Familian, who is his predecessor, St. Basil's predecessor. Uh, thanks especially to the influence of St. Basil, uh, the ecclesiology and sacramental theology of St. Cyprian never ceased to be considered as more in conformity with the tradition and spirit of the church than the doctrine of St. Augustine. Baptism remained the absolute norm, akrivia, exactness. Akrivia is the Greek word we translate as exactness. Although taking into account the practice of those local churches which recognized the baptism of heretics who did not deny the very fundamentals of the faith, the doctrine of the Trinity, it was accepted that when reasons of economy demanded it, you'll see that in St. Basil's 47th canon, which we'll talk about later on, uh, that's how he understands the practice in Rome as, a, as an economy, not as a stance, an ecclesiological stance, but as a pastoral theolo theological stance. And he could not have understood it otherwise, because, again, he was following in this ecclesiology passed down. Uh, but that he saw that there was reasons for reasons of economy. They demanded it. They, there was a necessity for the church in that locality to do this economy. That is, out of condescension, he now explains it, for human weakness or for whatever historical circumstances, usually, uh, they could be received by the laying of hands and chrismation. Um, it's an interesting thing he goes on to say, which is relevant to our situation today, that the Patriarchate of Constantinople has never abolished uh, the stance of the decree that was taken uh, in, in 1755 by Kirill, the Patriarch of Constantinople, and which was supported by the Kolibadis Fathers, St. Nicodemus, and all the, the Fathers on Athos. Uh, we'll talk about that as well in future podcasts. Some people are doubting whether St. Nicodemus actually uh, believed and supported what he wrote in the Pedalia, uh, which, is, which is really um, unfortunate that people think that a saint can place into uh, a text and with his name, uh, something he doesn't believe. But that's the that's what people are now saying. Uh, we'll talk about that. We have in just produced in Greece recently. I don't know if you can see this, a massive tome of all the correspondence of all the correspondence of Saint Nicodemus and Dorotheos Vulismas. And we'll talk about that in future podcasts because it's very important to correct uh, some of the misconceptions that are going around today about St. Nicodemus and his position. So here we have 
Archie Manager Placid, who is saying, look, <clears throat> this is the norm. Uh, so he was defending himself against accusations, of course, when he was received. And let's, let's check that out a minute because we have that right here for you. These are pictures from his baptism on Mount Athos. Archimandrite uh, Blanquid and his brotherhood is 1977 at the Holy Monastery of Simon Petra. Elder Emilianos uh, of blessed memory is seen giving the candle to Father Blanquid, Father Placid, I don't know. Uh, however you want to pronounce it, depending on the language you're speaking, and then leading his and his synodia, his brotherhood, small brotherhood, uh, in the dance of Isaiah with the present abbot Eliseos looking on. And behind him you can find Eliseos present, who's the now abbot of Mount Athos. So they're, they're, they were baptized on the pier in the, in the sea there at the bottom of the mountain uh, before the monastery of Simono Pedro by Elder Milianos. And so people were outraged, of course, in the Roman Catholic Communion, and they, including uh, the Vatican, and they notified the Patriarchate uh, at that time of Constantinople. And they, there, were, uh, there were, to my knowledge, there were bishops sent to investigate, so to speak. And the Holy Fathers, of course, defended the practice uh, on the basis not only of St. Nicodemus, but of the Synod of the Patriarchate of Constantinople itself, which, as Father Placid said, and Bishop Carlos Suswer in other places in his writings say, says that it has not been uh, disproved until this day. Uh, there has not been uh, anything to overturn that, that, uh, that position by the Patriarchate of Constantinople, although in practice, Many times they have abandoned the uh, decisions of St. Cyril uh, and they have uh, um, enforced chrismation across the board. The, the reception of converts uh, officially in the documents has never been overturned uh, as being necessary for them to be baptized. So they, this is, uh, was defended by Father Placid in his writings. Uh, on what basis did the fathers do this and why did they accept it? And so you, you, you might be interested in reading that further in, uh, in that book by the now uh, Archbishop of the Diocese of the South, uh, Golitsyn, <clears throat> then higher monk. Uh, uh. So let's go on and let's look at some other holy fathers of the time. St. Cyril of Jerusalem, uh, very important catechist, one of the great, cate the, if not the greatest catechism that comes down to us from the time, the fourth century, uh, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, uh, renowned for his uh, catechetical lectures and an authoritative father with regard to the ancient church's initiation practices. And so what, what he says should hold a lot of weight for us. Uh, he took, of course, the traditional stance. And he speaks uh, to the uniqueness of Christian baptism. And he says, uh, talking about the, that it's not repeated, uh, for, for those in the church, it's only given once. Uh, for there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Uh, this is a very clear ecclesiological statement. The unity of the mysteries with the unity of the Lord and the unity of the faith and the unity of the church all goes together. Uh, someone was questioning, I, I noticed uh, as I was preparing for tonight's talk, I had never seen this uh, Never read it. I'd heard that it was issued. Uh, there was a review of my book uh, that was uh, 2018 was produced by a priest in the Diocese of the South, Father John Cox. Uh, and so I thought, well, uh, why don't I review that? It'll be good for tonight's class. And so I finally did sit down and read it. 
And in there, there was this idea, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, that uh, these, this phrase is not necessarily, or the words of St. Paul in, four, in Ephesians 4, 5 are not necessarily a ecclesiological statement. But this is, of course, not, not tenable because everywhere that you see this statement commemorated in the, in the writings of the Holy Fathers, it has to do with the boundary of the church and the, and the nature of the church. And so it's obviously uh, understood in the patristic uh, literature as an ecclesiological statement. And uh, he goes on and he says, for only the heretics are rebaptized because the former was no baptism. So I don't know how much clearer and more succinct we can get uh, than that. Uh, there was there is no baptism among the heretics outside the church. Uh, they must be baptized, and uh, he says, of course, they're baptized because they, they have not been baptized. This is the first time they'll be baptized in the church. Uh, Saint Cyril is succinct because it was taken for granted. It was not something he needed to defend. In fact, he's talking to catechumens, so he didn't need to explain to catechumens. They understood when they were coming in. And, and St. Dionysius says the same thing in the 3rd century. That, and St. Cyprian says the same thing. That, that many, many heretics were, were united to the church through baptism. Uh, St. Cyril's statements, uh, I think, are likewise evidence that the position of the churches of Asia Minor, Alexandria, North Africa, uh, were shared in the church of Jerusalem. It really was not uh, anything um, revolutionary. If we accepted the apostolic constitutions and canons originated from the Church of Antioch, which is supposed by scholars, uh, it becomes clear that the so-called Cyprian ecclesiology was, in fact, in its essential points, the common ecclesiology of the great patriarchal sees, with the exception of Rome. The exception of Rome. And again, the, the St. Basil, as you'll, you'll see, is interpreting Rome's stance as a question of pastoral theology, pastoral stance, and not a question of ecclesiology. In other words, he, he does not he does not allow for the idea that in Rome they're actually recognizing per se outside the church mysteries. But he says, well, because of some economy, he says in in Canon forty seven. So that's the prism that he's looking at these questions as questions of acrivia and economia today. There are not a few people who are doubting this as even an interpretive key. And this is, of course, will lead to a disaster in terms of Orthodox theology, just a, a total disaster. If you reject what St. Basil is clearly saying in his canons as the way to interpret the practice of the church, it's in the realm of pastoral economy, a theology, a pastoral life of the church, how they deal with the sake, how they, how they manage the household. That's what's uh, what's at stake. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's let's go to one more father before we get to um, Saint Gregory the Theologian. We're looking at Saint Athanasius the Great. We're repeating ourselves a bit. I think we all also commented on this last time, but it's important to to marshal and to present for for you all the chorus of the Holy Fathers and to see that this is something that's going on in Alexandria. Here he's continuing this. In the, in the so-called Cyprianic theology, ecclesiology. <clears throat> and St. Dionysius' basic position was the same, and the, count, the councils in the East said, said as much. Uh, St. Athanasius the Great writes, concerning the Arians, Manichaeans, 
Philogians and the disciples of Paul of Samosata in particular. Uh, but his comments are really applicable, and from from the context, it's obvious they're applicable beyond those particular heretics, but to all those who have fallen away from the one faith and the one church. For not he who simply says, O Lord, gives baptism, but he who with a name has also the right faith. Now, this is very important, this reference to the name and the right faith as being inseparable. They have to be together. Because you'll see in, in the Council of, uh, the Canon of uh, Eight of the Council of Arles in the West, it appears, although it could be, depends on our interpretation, but certainly later on in, in, in church history in the West, you have the idea that the name alone, the name alone is sufficient uh, for uh, the mystery to take place. And that you can have heretics who do not rightly divide the word of truth, who have fallen away from the faith in terms of uh, the uh, Holy Trinity, that they could be baptized into the church. And, in, and you arrive at, at Trent, and you'll have a canon that says, anathema to anyone who does not accept the baptism, not just by a heretic, but by a, a Jew or a, an atheist or, or a Muslim. Uh, if that person is trying to do what the church does and says, says all the right words and does all the right things. So here, I don't know how you can possibly reconcile that teaching in Trent with what St. Athanasius is saying right here. On this account, therefore, that our Savior also did not simply command to baptize, but first he says, teach, and then thus baptize into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the teaching, the faith, the acceptance of the teaching is, uh, it, it is, it precedes, it precedes uh, the, uh, the baptism, and it goes along with the baptism. That the right faith might follow upon learning, and together with right, the, the faith might come the consecration of baptism. There are many other heresies too. You see, it wasn't just those five or four heresies. There are many other heresies too, which use the words only, but not in the right sense, as I have said, nor with sound faith. And in consequence, the water which they administer is unprofitable, as deficient in piety, so that he who is sprinkled by them is rather polluted by your religion than redeemed. You remember in the last session we talked about St. Cyprian saying the same thing. In every point here, St. Cyprian will talk about these, these very points. Uh, and so if, if it's a Cyprianic ecclesiology, it's an Athanasian ecclesiology. Uh, and you'll see it's also a St. Basilian ecclesiology. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a patristic ecclesiology. They, they don't see it just as benign or as a type or as something that can be fulfilled, but actually as polluting. I don't know how you can reconcile this with what Blessed Augustine is going to teach uh, 100 years later. But his teaching, admittedly, is rather complicated, and they're at times it appears to be some kind of uh, very, very uh, minute nuances that, so you cannot gen generalize very easily with Blessed Augustine's teaching as there seems to be sometimes uh, contradictions. Uh, so uh, let's go on to St. Gregory the Theologian, uh, who gives us some beautiful, beautiful theology and theological analysis and uh, uh, uh unpacking in his orations, uh, his stance as it pertains to the question of the boundary of the church and the mysteries of the church and the identity of the church 
Uh, and here's uh, some, uh, the, in the middle there, you see uh, relics of St. Gregory the Theologian at Batopedi Monastery in Monathos. Uh, if you ever make it to Monathos, you can venerate his relics and St. John Chrysostom's incorrupt ear and many other holy fathers. St. Gregory the Theologian, we're going to spend a little time here and stick with me. It's a little bit much. It's a lot, lot, lot to cover in a quick, quick, uh, short amount of time. Of course, he was Patriarch of Constantinople at the end of his life. He lived from 329 to 389. And he spoke of heretical baptism in the context of his orations against the followers of Eunomius and Macedonius. The main object of the great preacher and theologian is to maintain the Nicene faith uh, of the Trinity, in the Trinity, maybe, and bring the followers of heresy back to the true faith and into the church. In his discourse on holy baptism, which was given to former Arians, mainly Eunomians, the followers of Macedonius who are now being catechized, he speaks of the one faith as a prerequisite of the saving baptism. So it, here he's talking to former heretics who were undoubtedly baptized in their heresy about the need to be baptized. If you are still limping and are unable to receive the, perfect, the perfectness of the Godhood head of the divinity and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, go and look for someone else to baptize you, or rather to drown you in the baptism. So he's clearly saying here that the baptism of heretics is not profitable. I have no permission to rend the Godhead, to separate the deity of the Son and the Spirit from the deity of the Father. So he's talking about the theology of the heretics. There's no, 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 uh, it's not going to uh, do what the heretics do. And to make you dead at the moment of your regeneration in baptism. So that's what happens in the baptism of the heretics. That you should have neither the gift of baptism nor the hope born from the grace of baptism. But in so short a time, make shipwreck for your salvation. For whatever you may subtract from the deity of the three, you will have overthrown the whole of the Trinity and destroyed for yourself the perfection of baptism. Uh, so St. Gregory here is obviously uh, presenting the same outlook that we see in our previous fathers. In total agreement with St. Athanasius and the consensus patrum, St. Gregory rejects any baptism which is not which not only does not use the holy names, but also does not express the Orthodox faith. Anyone not baptized in this faith, he says, is baptized into death and deprived of salvation. Any baptism which is in any way subtracts from the deity of the three is no baptism at all, but rather deprives the one being baptized of grace, hope, and salvation. This is consistent with the position of the earlier fathers we've examined, and heretical baptism is that to the detriment the detriment of the one baptized. He doesn't refrain from stating this positively and clearly in his oration against the Arians and others who deny the divinity of the Holy Spirit. He says, neither will I bear to be deprived of my consecration, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. If this be canceled, from whom, I, from whom shall I get a second baptism? What say you, you who destroyed baptism or you who repeat it? Can a man be spiritual without the spirit? He's talking, of course, probably here to Macedonians 
who were who denied the spirit. He, has he a share in the spirit who does not honor the spirit? Can he honor him who is baptized into a creature and a fellow servant? In our third car, we have more from the orations, and he continues. I will not allow myself, after having been taught the words of the faithful, to learn also those of the unfaithful, to confess the truth and then arrange myself with falsehood, to come down for consecration and to go back even less howled. Having been baptized that I might live to be killed by the water, like infants who die in the very birth pangs and receive death simultaneously with birth. Why make me at once blessed and wretched, newly enlightened and unenlightened, divine and godless, that I may make shipwreck even of the hope of regeneration? So clearly, the heretical baptism, in this case, Arian, Eunomian, Macedonian, is nothing but spiritual death and destruction, according to St. Gregory. It's impossible to reconcile the theologian's words here with the idea of the legitimacy, let alone the efficacy of heretical uh, baptism. But lest we think that St. Gregory imagines that simply holding the faith in a theoretical sense, apart from the initiation into and living the life of the church can make one's baptism salvific, he tells his listeners, former followers of Macedonius and Enomius, that baptism makes a person one of the faithful. This, this brings us this, this, this thought that people present all the time today, and that is that people can be baptized outside of the church. But baptism itself is initiation into the church and makes you one of the faithful, as St. Gregory says right here. And that the laver is, quote, not a mere washing away of sins, but also a correction of one's manner of life. So here you see that the, the mysteries and the fruit of the mysteries go together. The dogma, the confession of faith, and the ethos, the way of life in Christ, are inseparable. In other words, to be baptized means to become a Christian, and outside the church, Christians do not exist. He says, St. Gregory, despise not to be and to be called faithful. As long as you are a catechumen, you are but in the threshold of piety. You must come inside. This is the initiate. This is baptism. Initiation means baptism means initiation into the body. You must come inside and cross the court and observe the holy things and look into the holy of holies and be in company with the Trinity. Where does that happen in the church? To become a Christian means to receive baptism at the hands of the one of the church's approved ministers. Not enough just to receive it as they they will say in Trent uh, by anyone, Christian or not, initiated or not. Uh, one who is estranged from the church cannot initiate into the church. This is a basic principle, a patristic principle, which was abandoned, unfortunately, in the West. Uh, he says, to thee, let everyone be trustworthy for purification. Do not submit yourself to someone who's not trustworthy, does not teach the faith, provided that he is, is one of those who have been approved. So it's going to be a minister of the church who's approved by the church who is approved in, in his way of life and in his faith. Not of those who are openly condemned, not a stranger, alotrios, to the church. Those, the, only those can initiate one into the church. So what's our conclusion here? 
He calls the sinners to be baptized in this faith. And this call is synonymous with calling them to become members of the church at the hands of the church. He demands from these former followers of Harris to be rightly disposed and marked with the good inscription of the church's faith so that he can make them perfect with the one baptism of the church. It is clear in this context that the idea of heretical or schismatic baptism constitutes a man, constituting a man, a member of the church, is incompatible with St. Gregory's vision of the baptism and the church. All right, St. Gregory the theologian. Now let's go to St. Basil towering figure, the most important probably figure in the whole question throughout the ages. His canons, just two or three that really did deal with this, are so important for the church. So to begin with, it's unquestionable that we have a father who follows the Holy Fathers. He says as much right from the beginning of his canon. He follows the Holy Fathers. And who was his Holy Father that he followed? Who was the fathers immediately preceding him? One of them was St. Familian who we saw as a major supporter and repeater of the same ecclesiology as St. Cyprian. And that was his predecessor, Don Imeteron, uh, in Greek, uh, predecessor. He calls one of our own, St. Cyprian, St. Familian. Uh, so any suggestion to the contrary, that he was not following St. Familian when he quotes him in the canon, uh, it's just not, it's just, I don't know what to say, but it's just very ignorant of what a Holy Father in the church is and does. It's absurd, I think, personally, I think it's absurd to, to imagine that St. Basil will commemorate his fathers by name, generally and then by name, only to overturn them and abandon their teaching. And this is what is implied by not a few people today with regard to his canon. So in the canon, he says, uh, he commemorates the teachings of St. Familian and St. Cyprian without any correction. But then he adds, and we'll talk all about this, the whole question of economy. And, and, and that is what's not explicitly mentioned, although it's present in St. Cyprian. You can find his uh, understanding of God's economy, God's providence, God's uh, working out outside of the norm. It's in his, in his uh, epistles. It's not hard to find. But St. Basil is explicit. Uh, and so he's taking refuge absolutely, undoubtedly, in the teachings of his predecessors. What does he say? The very outset of his canon. Whatever I have heard from the elders and all that I have been taught in conformity with their lessons. This is what I searched my mind. I searched, what did the elders teach me? What have I been taught? Make sure I'm in conformity with the lessons that I was taught. This is St. Basil the Great, deferring, of course, to his predecessors and his teachers. So it's just this, this idea that Pope Stephen turned out to be the one who got it right in the debate with Cyprian. And in fact, we abandoned St. Cyprian. It's just absurd. It's, 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 it's essentially, uh, people are forced into that position because they will refuse to understand and adopt what the Holy Fathers have adopted, and that is the Ecrivia Economia interpretive key and distinction. That's the key. When you abandon that, you abandon Orthodox ecclesiology ultimately, although it's not necessary. You end up doing that because there's no other way to interpret our pastoral practice outside of that, outside of that paradigm. 
And so they end up having to, to do crazy things like say St. Basil was an innovator. And St. Basil didn't follow St. Cyprian and St. Fermilion, uh, even though he commemorates them in the canon. Uh, and that is that is really unfortunate. That's uh, really unfortunate. Uh, it's obvious in the writings of St. Basil that the father's dogmatic teaching on the church was not in the least altered, even while generous allowance was made for its pastoral application in particular circumstances, according to the judgment of each bishop. And that's there in St. Cyprian as well. St. Cyprian says as much. It's up to each bishop. He, he freely left each bishop. To, to, de to determine in his diocese how he's going to deal with it. Uh, the, the council ruled, but he was not an autocrat. He did not have that approach that Pope Stephen had. He, he understood the, the, the each bishop will give account. He says it very clearly in his writings. This is what St. Saint, Saint Basil is doing as well. Economias anecantum polon. This a phrase is so important. We have to unpack this phrase. Uh, uh, and it's translated poorly usually, it, by economy, we have to unpack what that means, for the sake of the many. So this is one of the criteria, one of the few criteria that we even have from any of the canons that is cited, that's commemorated in later councils, is uh, in, in the canons there's not a reason given, with the exception of maybe two or three instances. There's no reason given for why they're doing what, what they're doing. Here, St. Basil says, for the sake of the many. So we have one of the criteria, and that is that it's an economy, it's a pastoral exception, because there are many coming back, there are many, and there's a pastoral need for the church to deal with that in a particular place or time. This is exactly what St. Nicodemus the Hagarite will say later, and people will criticize him for that. Oh, how could he look at history and the state of the state of the church and the and the and the pastoral state of the church and the, the sake of the for the sake of the many. That's what he's doing. Just what St. Basil says right here in his first canon. Uh, so within one common dogmatic viewpoint, ecclesiological viewpoint, diverse practice is possible. This is where this is where people need to crucify their rationalistic approach to the church, Christ, and the mysteries in order to enter into the patristic mind. And this is what St. Cyprian teaches, and this is what St. Basil teaches. So let's go on, and let's continue now. Let's first of all start with where he is clearly uh, following and appealing to, not just following, but appealing to, uh, and uh, repeating the stance of St. Cyprian uh, in terms of the, the dogmatic side of the question. Uh, in Canon 1 and Canon 47. These are two canons we'll look at tonight. And they're very important. They have to go together as well. You can't take them apart. You need to understand them together. So he's, he quotes St. Cyprian and St. Familian. And just I'm giving just an excerpt from this large, longer uh, canon. Uh, and he's talking about what they taught. And he's quoting them as saying, uh, after breaking away, he's talking about the schismatics, they became laymen and had no authority either to baptize or ordain anyone, nor could they impart the grace of the Spirit to others after they themselves had forfeited it. We're talking about very clear schismatics. We're not talking about a break in communion. We're not talking about, uh, we're talking about those who had broken away, condemned the church, set up uh, parallel jurisdictions, uh, had existed for time. Uh, this is what he, he's talking about. The Novations, the Kathari, 
and they had spread throughout the throughout the empire. Uh, they began in Rome. They went to North Africa. They were dealt with by many holy fathers. So this is not something that people say. Well, we have these. We have a schism right now in the church between Jerusalem and Antioch. It's nothing like what Saint Basil is talking about, and it's not. It's not really a true schism because we have communion between all the other churches. It's a break in commemoration, a break in communion between two local churches, but it's not the schism that the St. Basil and the Holy Fathers are dealing with in the 4th century. Uh, Canon 47, again, concerning schismatics and heretics. Why are we talking, by the way, everybody, people are thinking, why talk all again and again and again about schismatics and heretics? Why are we talking about baptism continually? Because this is what's at stake today. There's two reasons. To better understand the boundaries of the church, the understanding of the Holy Fathers, you see it in contrast when they're dealing with those who are outside the church, the communion, uh, the coming back into communion, how they're dealing with these issues. Then is re it's revealed the contours and the boundaries of the church. So that's the first reason. Second reason is because this is what we're dealing with today. All of this is in doubt. There's, there's varying interpretations of these writings of the Holy Fathers. People are doubting very basic things that again and again we'll see were taken for granted. They were taken for granted. Why are, why are, are the canons not explicit in why they're doing things? Because the ecclesiology was not in question. The ecclesiology was not doubted. And therefore, there was no reason to state we're doing this for this reason and that reason, for economy or for a creed or anything like that. Uh, some commentators will come and say, some critics will say, well, there's no explicit reference to the theory of economy and a clevia. Of course there's not. Well, there is here in St. Basil's canon, but in, in the 95th canon in Trullo, there doesn't need to be. It's, it's, it's right here in St. Basil's uh, canons, and it's, it's a given because this is how the church has operated, and it's witnessed to by St. Cyril of Alexandria and St. Evlogios of Constantinople and other saints. It's not something that was in question. We are questioning it in the 20th century. Not any, there wasn't a time before that it was greatly questioned. The, the explanation given by the Kolivali's fathers in the 18th century was accepted by the church, was embraced by the church, and was repeatedly uh, put forward for 150 years by the Patriarchate of Constantinople as the norm up until our own day. You can have writings, uh, there are writings of, of, of bishops of Constantinople up until the 80s, <clears throat> at least, maybe even today, which clearly reaffirm that this is the interpretive key. Father George Dragas in his articles which we'll quote later on, uh, says and gives witness to this is the norm in the Patriarchate of Constantinople, which in which all of these things uh, took place in the second millennium. So, again, let's go back to St. Basil, Canon 47, uh, concerning schismatics and heretics. We rebaptize such persons, he says, and if it be objected that what we are doing is forbidden as regards this practice of rebaptism, precisely as in the case of present-day Romans, for the sake of economy, see how he interprets their practice? He interprets their practice in the prism of the Crivia Economia. He doesn't see it as another ecclesiology, even if it might have been. I'm not sure what was going on in Rome at the time. What were they thinking about it? Certainly that's the accusation of St. Cyprian to Stephen. Now, did they continue that after Stephen? I don't know. There's actually witness to, witness of popes who's, who appealed to Cyprian, Cyprian. In fact, there's an article, in, and I cite in my book, uh, which does a very good job of marshalling the witness of, of popes in uh, the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th century. Only one appealed to Augustine. 
all the rest to St. Cyprian on these questions of heretics and reception. So even in the West, it's not at all clear that the, uh, what will happen after the schism for sure, uh, after Aquinas and after the scholastics, and that the Augustinian ecclesiology will be not only adopted, but be, be built on and, 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 and changed. Uh, that's not at all clear that that's happening in Rome uh, in the centuries following St. Augustine. They appeal to St. Cyprian uh, almost exclusively. So he is understanding it as a question of economy in Rome. He says, even if they have this economy that they're doing in Rome, for whatever reason that the bishops there are doing this, yet we insist that our rule prevail. He's talking to his Asia Minor. He's talking to Amphilochius. I think he's writing to Amphilochius. But he's not talking about what happens in the church in Rome. He's talking about what happens in Asia Minor. And so we do not admit them into the church unless they get baptized with our baptism. The acrivia of the church, the exactitude of the church. We're not doing economy here. And he's talking about schismatics. He's talking about schismatics. So this is something uh, that is so, so, it's hard to, to why people even debate this today. It's, 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 uh, it's rather amazing. It's very clear. Now, there's, uh, there's some who, some scholars who say that this, 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 um, Version of the canon is not the real version of the canon. We don't have any other version in the Orthodox Church. They've added, they've changed it uh, in the Loeb Classics. There's a there's a there's a change to say that's not really appealing, uh, applying to the Novations, but that's not in our canonical collections. Not Saint Nicodemus. Not in the contemporary canonical collections that we use in the Church of Greece. So I'm not going to pay much attention to that, even if there are scholars in the West who think that this has been uh, this is a uh, uh, a version of the canon which is not, you know, not legitimate. So the interpretive key is acrivia economia. All right, what is that all about? Let's let's talk, we'll get into that step by step and unpack that for some of us who are unfamiliar with it. Uh, it's taken for granted. Again, it's taken for granted in uh, Saint Basil's first canon from the outset. Listen to what he says. He says at the beginning of the canon, it is right to follow the custom obtaining in each region, because those who at the time gave decision on these points, talking about his fathers, the fathers in the faith, held different opinions concerning their baptism. So right there he's saying, look, depending on the circumstance, depending on the needs, the bishop in charge can follow and do what he sees fit. That's exactly what Crivia Economia is all about. It's about the need for the freedom of the bishop to depart from the acrivia, the, the norm, for the sake of the salvation of the people, to, to manage his household. And that includes the question of reception. Clearly, that is not something that's an innovation of St. Nicodemus or anybody else in the, in the 18th century. This is what St. Basil is talking about right here. And St. the new martyr Hilarion Trotsky, Trotsky, who has a tremendously important Treaties on the Unity of the Church. Anybody can download it. It's online at orthodoxinfo.com or Prav Solavia. Prav, uh, what's the name of that site? Prav Solavia. Prav, the one in 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 uh, in, in Moscow. Uh, Orthodoxchristian.com maybe is, is is what I'm thinking of. Anyway, it's online. It's a PDF. Just put the title in and his name, and you can download it. Very important treaties. I'll be referring to it. Uh, quite often. And he says, look, if St. Basil recognized baptism outside the church as grace-giving and effectual, 
then he could not have reasoned in this manner. He could not have reasoned in this manner. Then he would have had to insist that schismatics should nowhere be baptized because baptism is one. And that's exactly what is happening now in contemporary ecumenical circles and in the West and Catholicism. They've arrived at that. They've arrived at this idea that, that it's, it's per se uh, uh, exists, there's grace given, uh, no matter if it's in Catholicism or not, no matter if it's in Orthodoxy or not. But that's not St. Basil. That's not the, the tradition that he received and he passed on. And the proof of that is that he says there's times when we can reject it, there's times when we can receive it, and we're going to explain, we're going to talk about why is that possible? How is that possible? Right? People want to, people many times say, well, I don't get that. How can you do it? There are criteria. It's not just a free-for-all. There have to be certain presuppositions. Uh, but that's the freedom of Christ. Christ does this, just like he did it with a thief on the cross. Uh, he, it's the same thing that happens throughout church history, but there has, it doesn't happen without criteria. You see St. Basil's here and say, look, these are the criteria we lay down. In these cases, yes. In these cases, no. We don't, we don't, we're not going to um, uh, do it in these cases because the, the, it's not for the spiritual benefit. It's not profitable because this, this, and this. We'll talk about the criteria of when and how uh, economy is utilized. So, it's a pastoral matter, and the ecclesiology is a given. Ecclesiology is not questioned. Ecclesiology is not even in, in the realm of questioning here. There's no doubt as to the ecclesiology. Uh, so there's different views on the pastoral management of the matter, and they can exist from bishop to bishop uh, according to the criteria of the fathers, not willy-nilly, free-for-all, obviously, if we're going to be following the Holy Fathers, we have to do and follow their criteria. This is, in any case, consistent with what we know of the subsequent history. This is what a point I want to make because people, people think this is a major break with Cyprian. Look, this is just a continuation of the third century. What was going on there? That there were uh, Pope Stephen on the one hand and, and Cyprian on the other, and they had different uh, approaches. And the controversy continued into the fourth century. This is exactly what we see in Canon 47. The, the, the difference here, the, pro, the point we have to make here is that Cyprian was saying, and St. Basil was saying, what you do in Rome is your decision, but it's an economy from a, from a rule. The rule is common. Let's not doubt the rule. And he was doubting the rule. He was calling into the question the rule and the freedom of each bishop. So he was, he was actually, Pope Stephen was actually countering the church's practice and teaching. He was saying on both the ecclesiological grounds and, and pastoral theology, he was, he was saying this is not possible. You must not baptize the schismatics. And this is exactly what Rome does today and the ecumenists do today, right? The, the ecumenically minded <clears throat> are aghast if you baptize someone coming from a Protestant or papal Protestant, Reformed Protestant or papal Protestant background. <clears throat> but that's exactly what, what's going on here. St. Basil is saying no. That's the whole, the whole freedom of economy, according to the, the patristic criteria, and it doesn't call into question the boundaries of the church. I know that's hard for people to get their head around. It's, it's, it's maybe counterintuitive for, for a rationalist approach. Uh, not a few people have tripped here, but the freedom of Christ, that Christ is above his laws. He's not below his laws. He's not, 
doesn't submit to his laws. He gives them and he can surpass them. And the church is Christ. Church is Christ's body, but he is the head of the church. And under his inspiration and by his guidance, these God-bearing fathers, in time and place which is salvific, right? Everything is for salvation. That Christ, everything he did was for salvation. And everything the church does when it's the church and according to the church, right? It's in Christ and by Christ and with Christ, right? That's when it's salvific. Now, there are people who do it in the name of Christ, and they're not doing anything salvific at all because it's just a human uh, uh, clump of clay, and it's not a divine human synergy. But we're talking about the Holy Fathers of the church. We're talking about their wisdom. And that freedom has to be there for each bishop, and it has to be uh, understood in that context. And, uh, as, and, 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 and the context has to be the patristic mind, the patristic teaching. So... Uh, the matter is not going to be posited and solved on a dogmatic level for differences of opinion are not permitted on dogmatic issues, right? So the fact that he allows for differences in practice means that it's not a dogmatic issue that he can say, well, economy in Rome, but here we're going to baptize. That means that he's not seeing this in the prism of a dogmatic question, reflecting on the nature of Christ, the nature of the church, but as a pastoral question. Rather, there is no question of dogma to be solved at all here, uh, for at least for St. Basil. So the dogmatic issues are given and undisputed. In his first canon, St. <clears throat> Basil presents the pastoral stewardship of the church as alternating between the exact application of the canons and the temporary retirement of the canons, economia, according to particular pastoral need. We just stated that. St. Basil opts repeatedly for an exact keeping of the canons, even though he allows for economy. If you, if you pay attention to the canons, first and 47th, he's constantly coming back and saying, we should baptize. We should do a grivia. Uh, he says, well, if they want to do it, let it be. You see how the, 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 the wisdom of the saint here. He's saying, look, uh, I'm not going to act like a pope. I'm not going to shove it down everybody's throat. I'm not the synod. I'm one bishop, but here's what I'm doing. Here's the example I'm giving. And he, and he always inclines toward, <clears throat> when it's his, in his power, toward aggrivia, toward exactitude. And he only allows for concessions uh, uh, for the economy of the many. So there has to be a serious pastoral need and not just uh somebody's desire, somebody's inability to, to accept the church's teaching. People come to the church today and they, well, I, I, I can't accept baptism. I, I, I want to be chrismated because I, I have these ideas about what was my life outside the church in the various heterodox communities. That's not what St. Basil's talking about here. That's a question of proper catechism and time for them to be initiated into the mind of the church. Obviously, they have they need more time before they're received to the church. If they're perception of things is in that context, that heterodox view of the ecclesiology, then they're not thinking like St. Basil here. Uh, dogmatic theory does not change, but is a condescending practice to be permitted. And he says that, esto dexton, let it be allowed, let it be permitted. All right. So it's, that's the realm here, right? Just driving this point home in different ways so we get this because this is a very very important point if you again if you don't understand the uh, exactitude a economy economia 
uh, paradigm. You don't understand what's going on with St. Basil, what he's talking about. Inevitably, you're going to trip over and not understand Orthodox ecclesiology. Not that that's ecclesiology comes first and that flows from it, but people oftentimes start with the practice and then they try to figure out the ecclesiology. It doesn't work that way. You start with Christology, you go to ecclesiology, and then you come to the pastoral practice. Only in the context of ecclesiology, Christology, the church's experience of Christ, Christ and the body of Christ, understanding what that is, who that is. And then in that context, looking at the pastoral practice, and only in that context. Many people look at practice and say, well, how is it possible for the church, as this reviewer of my book said, how is it possible for the church to say that there's no one, that people are coming to the church who are not baptized, and they're not being baptized by the church? How, how, how is it possible for, when do you baptize without a baptism, I think was the title. Well, your answer is right here in St. Basil. Your answer is right here in, in his canons. I don't understand what... Why is, this a, why is this a problem? The problem is that we don't want to sit at the feet of the Holy Fathers and accept their paradigm and their thinking. We want to interpret it through our experience and a 21st century people, and it's not going to work. Uh, we have to crucify our mind that, that, that in this realm of economia, the mystery of salvation is being worked out in, in other ways that are not the norm, the way our Lord did the same with the thief on the cross. He was not baptized, but he was in paradise on that day because of confession. And, it's, and that freedom we give to Christ in the person of the, of, the, of the bishop. But, of course, that person of the bishop has to be following the Holy Fathers and the, uh, the Lord. Um, so listen what he what he has to say here. It is our duty to reject their baptism. And that in the case of anyone who has received baptism from them, we should, on his coming to the church, baptize him. If, however, there is any likelihood of this being detrimental to general discipline, we must fall back upon custom. So he's explaining here this um, the relationship between what is the norm, the crevia, and what's economy. And follow the Holy Fathers who have ordered what course we are to pursue. For I am under some apprehension, lest... In our wish to discourage them with regard to baptism, we may, through the severity of our decision, be a hindrance to those who are being saved. So here, soteriology is the, is, the, is the key. What is the obstacle that might prevent them? And to get rid of that obstacle and to bring them into the communion of the church. This is exactly what uh, Metropolitan uh, Athanasius Yevtich says in his analysis of George Florovsky's teaching on the limits of the church. He says exactly this, that the whole point here is the communion with the church. Uh, now, is there an answer to how is it possible that they can be received without it being baptized by and in the church in, in those cases that they were in church history? Uh, and there is no answer given by the tradition as, as, as an explanation. As I said, the canons do not give the cause. There is no etiologia in the canons, with, the, with only one or two exceptions. And those point to practical and pastoral problems or issues, and not the theological issues. That's just the way it is. And you have to crucify your mind on that reality. Fathers didn't feel the need to explain to the heterodox why they're being received the way they are. Or to, or, or to explain uh, that the pastoral practice uh, is in the 
uh, freedom of, of the church to do. For whatever reason, the church, it's the church. It's Christ. And we trust Christ in the church. That's what it comes down to. It comes down to trust. Who do you trust? And the church is Christ and he's the head of it or it's, or it's not. And you doubt and you look at human beings. Now, the problem is when we depart from the orthodox dogma and ethos, when we depart from the ascetic path, the narrow path, then all kinds of other motivations, other criteria enter in and they corrupt our own practice. And then people say, well, what's going on here? There's confusion. Of course, there's going to be confusion. So this is this is assuming we're in the right perspective and context, right? Let's not want to be confused here. This is assuming that we're talking about the Holy Fathers and their way. He goes on, if they accept our baptism, do not allow this to distress us. We are by no means bound to return them the same favor, but only strictly obey the canons. On every ground, let it be enjoined that those who come to us from their baptism be anointed in the presence of the faithful and only on these terms approach the mystery. So he's laying down that criteria. He's saying, look, this is a Kriva, this is economy. This is what we should do. But if there's some need, the Holy Father sit down, let it be blessed. But in every case, let this be the case. Let it make sure that the uh, that all the faithful see the return, the confession of the faith, and the um, uh, the return of the heretic to the church. All right, we'll read this quickly, and then we'll move on because there's a lot to cover still. Note that even though he makes allowance, St. Basil in his first canon, for a temporary departure from the canons, he nevertheless clearly prefers their observance. We've said this. The received rule of faith is the starting point, even if a temp temporary Departure is ruled necessary. If Encratites accept our baptism, he says that this should not concern us. So today, if you think about the various heterodox communions recognizing our baptism, like the papal Protestants recognizing the Orthodox baptism, that's, that's neither here nor there. Vatican II ecclesiology is irrelevant to what we're going to do. And yet that's not the case in many, many places because they're infected, they're influenced by heterodox thinking. Rather, we must take care to observe the exactness of the canons. Do levin acrivia canonon. That's what he comes back to. He says it several times in his canons. Do, to do so meant that the exactness of the rule of the church was well known. He didn't have to explain it. He knew, everybody knew that this was the acrivia. Dogmatic teaching in the East generally, but in Asia Minor in particular, was formulated in council in Iconium, Synada, by St. Familian, and elsewhere such as St. Athanasius. So it was well known what, what the exactness of the canons, and the canons he's talking about, what are the canons? Well, could be the canons, could be the apostolic canons, possibly, 46 and 47, or any other canons from the councils, from, the, from those councils that were passed that we might not, we might not have today. Uh, and those canons depose clerics who have admitted the baptism of heretics. So what does it mean to admit, to recognize? per se, to say that they are they have the same baptism. It's not the, not the economy, but to per se recognize as that of the church. There's very clear canons that reject any recognition of heterodox or heretical baptism. And the person who does that, the bishop or priest, needs to be defrocked, according to the canons. So those canons are, are perfectly legitimate, and they lay down the boundaries. And so when we pass from economy into an ecclesiological sense of recognition, we've departed from 
orthodoxy and the canons call for the deposition, the opposing of those clerics who, who depart from, from the rule of faith. Uh, and in the East, every, as a rule, uh, every heretical baptism was rejected, even if it was formally correct. That's not the case in the West. In the West, the idea developed that if it's formally correct, it can be accepted. Now, accepted in what sense? Accepted per se as a mystery? That appears to be the case in, in Stephen's thinking. It's never the case in the, in the, in, among the Holy Fathers. If they're talking later on about validity, they're not talking about it being grace-giving and fruitful. They're talking about it maintaining the form. It's a very important point. Validity means maintaining the form, nothing more. So when you hear about, well, is it a valid baptism? That, that it goes without saying. Again, we're assuming the ecclesiology of the Holy Fathers. It goes without saying we're not talking about it per se. We're not talking about it in and of itself. We're not talking about mysteries being autonomous. Remember what Metropolitan Hilarion said, there's no autonomous mysteries. So there's no mysteries outside the body of Christ. So what happens in contemporary humanism is that you either have to extend the church there, which is what happens in Vatican II. They extend the church to say, well, the church is already there. Where there's a baptism, there's a church. That's impossible for us to do as Orthodox because the Orthodox faith is a prerequisite for the church. It, 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 you can't talk about the Orthodox Church without the Orthodox faith. So where they're departed from the Orthodox faith, there is no church. It's a very, very, very basic ecclesiological point. So, so you, the Orthodox are not going to do that, and we're not going to recognize autonomous mysteries either, as if it can exist outside, as if, as if people can be initiated into the life of the church outside the church. That's what the implication is. So the uh, the 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 requirement of the Trinitarian epiclesis is not that if it exists among the those outside the body of Christ, therefore it's a legitimate, valid, and fruitful baptism, but that it, it, it can't even be considered for economy if it does not have those basics of immersion and of the Trinity being called upon. The fathers would say that's totally unacceptable and, and they must be baptized. So they, they put those boundaries down for our pastoral practice, our economy. We're talking about, well, economy is in the freedom of the bishop within those boundaries. You can't just, just make up stuff. It's gotta be, there's got to be boundaries, and those boundaries are there to protect the church's teaching and to protect the church's boundaries, right? So that people not be confused and be uh, be, be um uh, identify heresy and the church. Uh, so those those prerequisites are very important to understand the stance of St. Basil. What, what are we doing here? We're trying to get into the mind of the fathers. We're trying to communicate to you how the fathers think. Why? To protect you from delusional heretical thinking, which is, which is a fog which is surrounding the Church of Christ today and, and entering into the windows and the doors and, and all over the place. All right, so... St. Basil has three classifications, well-known classifications in his first canon. Heresies, schisms, and parasynagogas. Parasynagogas, unlawful congregations. All right, those are the three types of groups that he's dealing with that are outside the church. Pay attention. Outside the church. They're not in the church. They're separated from the church. The heresies are those 
that are totally alien in faith as well. They're totally broken off and they're alien in terms of the faith. So the Manichaeans, the Valentinians, the Marcionites, the Montanists, all right? So those are people who teach heretical things. They, they, they've, they've fallen away from the Holy Trinity and Christ's divinity and humanity, and their teaching dogmatically is, is an error, all right? Those, he says, in every case, we baptize. There's no economy. There's no economy in, the, in these groups. Then there's schisms, those separated for some ecclesiastical reasons, and questions that are capable for mutual solution. That's a bit of an, of an interpretation, uh, but a summary. summary. Uh, so, I mean, the translation, I think, is, is, is wanting right there. But anyway, um, those groups are not erring in the faith, but they're, they're, they've, they've departed from the communion of the church, they've departed from the order of the church, they're, they're setting up uh, parallel jurisdictions or altars that are contrary to the to the bishop in the locality, etc. Uh, but they've not erred in the faith. They've not they've not taught heresy uh, as it pertains to the Trinity and Christ and all the rest. Uh, and then there's the unlawful congregations, and these are a variety of different historical anomalies that happen. People gather around a priest or a bishop uh, over some non dogmatic reason, uh, and and they're instructed. Uh, they're uninstructed laymen or they're bishops or presbyters that are disobedient and all the rest. So there's a third category. Um, so what's in, what we're going to look at here shortly is um, w the phrase at the end of this, this excerpt that I have on the left, which is very important. Um, but let's read it in context quickly. The old authorities decided to accept that baptism, which is no wise, in no wise errors from the faith. Thus, they used the names heresies and schisms and unlawful congregations. By heresies, they meant men who were altogether broken off and alienated. By schisms, they meant those who separated, as we said, for questions that are capable of mutual solution and unlawful congregations. And it gives an example of the unlawful congregation. And but he says in this context, he's talking about persons who leave the Catholic Church and join them, right? So this is an awful, an awful assembly of someone who actually leaves the church. It's not that they didn't leave the church, that they're in the church. They've left the church. To disagree with members of the church about repentance, he says, is schism. That was actually a particular question about, about the Catholic, the Novatians at the time. Instances of heresy are those of the Manichaeans, etc. We've said that. And then he says at the end, so it seemed good to the ancient authorities to reject the baptism of heretics altogether, but to admit that of schismatics on the ground that they still belong to the church. Now that question, that, that, that last sentence, the translation is incorrect. And it's incorrect in most translations that I've seen. I haven't seen anyone that got it right uh, in English. And it's a very important phrase. And we have uh, a Holy Father of the Church who's examined it and given us uh, an explanation. So we're going to look at the Greek, we're going to look at some of the Greek meaning, and then we're going to go to the uh, St. Hilarion Trotsky and look at what he has to say about this phrase, which is very important. Because it, it, it's really important to get what is St. Basil saying here about the schismatics. So in Greek, for those of you who know Greek, edoxe timin tis exarchis, tomenton reticon pandelos athetisi, to veiton aposkisandon 
os eti ectis ecclesias ondon para decaste. This phrase, os eti ectis ecclesias ondon, that's what needs to be unpacked. So this cannot mean that they're still in the church, which is the way it's, it's translated, it's still belonged to the church as present tense, that we're talking about people who are still in the church. As we already said, there are people who've left the church. We see that the uh, unlawful assemblies are considered those who've left the church, but the grammar doesn't allow us to believe, to understand that they are still in the church. It, it says, ek, ek has the opposite of is, is is to enter into, ek is to exit. So it has a sense of emotion out of or from something, it's going forth from something. Uh, it's used to denote change from one condition to another. These are different options in the in the grammar. Also, when it in, in, in used in terms of position, it can mean outside of beyond, like ek patridos, outside of the country, banished from one's country. In this case, it is equivalent to ektos, outside of. Uh, so ek means origin or separation, emotion forth from or out of. Describes something that originates in something else, but has sprung forth from that source and moves out of it. This is how the term, the phrase ek, uh, the, uh, the uh, word ek is understood. And thus becoming outside of it, separated from it. For example, man could come ek polios from out of the city. Uh, and he used to be in the midst of it, but now he's come out of it, etc. So the schismatics have just sprung out of the church, out of its bosom. That's what schism means, right? You've gone out from. Other heretical groups were also born in the church, but due to their differences in faith, they have greatly they are greatly estranged. Uh, the schismatics, however, are newly departed. This leads us to, to, to accept the reading of St. Uh, Hilarion. I'm sorry, I hadn't transferred the page, and uh, I didn't realize that. So I was reading from this page here. Uh, unfortunately, you didn't have that in front of you, but now uh, we'll go on to this page, and we're going to look at what St. Hilarion says, because this is exactly the, the, the understanding of St. Hilarion, what we just described. Look that down on the right-hand side of the page where there's yellow. We're going to read that portion. Uh, I want to give you the context, though, so if you wanted to look it up later, stop the, stop the video, pause it. You can read the whole context, or you can go online and read the, the, the text itself. It's on the unity of the church. St. Laurian Trotsky. So here, to get understand it, again, to enter into the mind of St. Basil, what is he saying about these groups? This is very important for us to understand the boundaries of the church and for us to be in the church and in the mind of the church. So he says, following the rule of the ancients, St. Basil divides all apostates into three classes, as we saw. But this is just in relation to the means of reception. Very important point. He's not talking about them for the sake of them as, as, as some kind of analysis, some 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 indifferent uh, scientific analysis. He's talking about them, well, what do we do in terms of the reception into the church again? That's the context. It's very important to understand that, otherwise you misunderstand what he's saying. The words of St. Basil must absolutely not be understood as though only heretics in the strict sense do not belong to the church, while others still remain in the church. The baptism of schismatics, os eti ectis ondon, should be received para dekiste, all right? Baptism schism should be received, writes St. Basil. The Greek words quoted here are often translated in the following manner, as still not alien to the church. That's the Slavonic translation. Or, as still belonging to the church, the Russian translation. 
and he's German there as well. But these are not translations, but interpolations, interpretations rather, which must be recognized as inaccurate. It should be translated literally as recently being from the church. That's the best translation possible given the, the meaning of the words used. Ek meaning something that you go out of. And eti as recently been from the church. There's no thought here that schismatics presumably still belong to the church, but the thought that they have recently gone out from the church, and in any case belonging to the church, can hardly be expressed by the preposition ek. And then he continues on the next page. It is difficult to conceive of belonging to the church in the form of successive stages. The church, unlawful assemblage, schism, etc. In, in the words of St. Basil, Eti Ecclesias designated some sort of membership of schismatics, uh, if the words, I'm sorry, if the words of St. Basil designated some sort of membership of schismatics in the church, then an unlawful assembly must, in his opinion, still belong more to the church, right? If, there's, if we're looking at it like in degrees, heretics really far away, schismatics still in unlawful assemblies, they must be really in, because they're the least problematic. Uh, adherents of an unlawful assembly are received only through repentance. What does St. Basil say about them? If someone has been barred from divine services because he has been found guilty of sin and is not submitted to the canons, but has arrogated for himself the right of presidency and the priestly functions and others abandoning the Catholic Church, have gone along with him. So, abandoning the Catholic Church. How can one be in the Church having left the Church? This would be some sort of incomprehensible self-contradiction to say that schismatics are still in the Church and affirm that the unlawful assemblies have departed from the Church, that they have left her. So, it's impossible in the context to come to the conclusion and the translation, which is circulating and people are reading in English, gives the impression and people all over the, in many places have cited this and said, see, schismatics are still in the church. It's a major error in interpretation of St. Basil. St. Hilarion goes on. So this is what the first canon of St. Basil teaches us. The church is one and only she alone has the entire fullness of the charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit. Whoever has in whatever way fallen away from the church in heresy, in schism, in an unlawful assembly, this man loses the communion of the grace of God. This is so important because you will see interpretations of the canons and say, oh, we deal with these groups because they're closer to the church. That's why we only receive them by confession or by communion or by uh, uh, chrismation. But those who are far away, we do by, uh, by, uh, only by baptism. Uh, but in fact, that's not the criteria set down that it, that can help one come back to the church. But the, whether or not one is baptized or chrismated is not based on proximity. They're all outside the church. It's based on the pastoral discernment and need by the bishop at the time. And, and of course, if, there's a, if there is a, a break and they're baptizing outside those unlawful assemblies, uh, are are not considered to be baptism. They're not baptizing uh, like in a schism. You have a formal 
departure, and then they're continuing the life of the church, and they're baptizing outside of that uh, life of the church. And so you have a formalization, as it were, of the schism. And and then in that context, uh, one could either be received by baptism or by economia. Uh, it, it, it depends. So uh, whoever has, in whatever way, fallen away from the church in heresy, this man loses the grace of God. So the mysteries performed outside the grace have no charismatic action. Only for the sake of the good of the church, for the sake of facilitation of being united to the church, can the rite of baptism not be repeated over those converted if it has been correctly performed outside the church. Not because the rite is already the mystery with grace, but in the hope that the grace-filled gift will be received in the very act of union with the body of the church. This is St. Hilarion explaining the practice of the church. By the way, this is a saint trying to explain the practice of the church, which the canons themselves do not explain. So it's always fraught with difficulty, right? Because the church has not even felt it necessary in the canons to explain most times, there are exceptions, why they're doing what they're doing. Uh, if baptism outside the church is completely incorrect, even if it's in, a, in its external aspect, as, for example, among the Montanists, then there is no foundation, no reason, logon, after St. Basil, for making such a condensation for them. Only because St. Basil did not inseparably link church practice with any sort of dogmatic theory about the validity of mysteries outside the church, only for this reason could he in principle agree to the permissibility of diverse practice in different countries. Only for this reason can one follow the custom of each country because it's not a dogmatic question. Therefore, there could be a variety of practices. That's the point St. Hilarion is making. That's a hugely important point. And so let's move on because we're, we're running quite late as usual. Um, what, can we, what can we say? We want to get to St. Augustine, a few words about St. Augustine, then we're going to close. But let's finish up with St. Basil. Just a few more slides and we're finished and we'll take the questions. So why, can, why is it that modern scholars can't or won't understand? So let's just examine this for a second because this is something we run into all the time. Uh, as we saw above, some, saint, some see St. Basil as considering schismatics as still belonging to the church and supposedly admitting their baptism. Some even say that St. Basil is contradicting himself, uh, being inconsistent, or that his logic is incoherent. I mean, there's one scholar, um, I, don't, I don't need to name his name, but he's, he's, he's writing uh, uh, quite a bit in uh, America, in uh, ecumenical circles. He's, he's a convert to orthodoxy from Catholicism, and he says that, well, St. Basil is incoherent. I mean, just that alone just just raises uh, eyebrows and says, well, how, how can we sit in the 21st century and in judgment of St. Basil and not come and sit at his feet? That, I mean, there's something very wrong with that whole approach. Uh, so he's incoherent because supposedly he's finding, he's first holding schismatic baptism to be of the church, acceptable, and then he's insisting that it be rejected. Opposedly. So this is the, they can't get their head around the saint's whole approach. For those who would like to see him as not following saints familiar and Cyprian and are not prepared to accept the so-called theory of economy as an explanation of his approach, they are at a, at a loss, at, a, uh, at this point, are at a loss to make sense of the saint's reasoning. See, the, the, the fact that they can't enter into his thinking is because they can't accept his distinctions, his paradigm of a and economia, of exactitude and economy. Uh, 
And that's the key. And that's why people fall away from Orthodox ecclesiology. Many Western scholars would like to see St. Basil as an exponent of a more moderate or nuanced view of things than St. Cyprian. St. Basil said to agree with the ruling of the Council of Arrows, which was the first to introduce the ethos or typos of baptism, the type of baptism, the form, as the criterion of judging the acceptability of heretical baptism. That's what it appears on the surface in any case in the Council of Arrows. They want to have him reconciled with that position in the West, and it's not possible. He very clearly says in several places that even if they use the names, it doesn't matter. Canon 47, he baptizes the schismatics when Rome does not. So that's not possible. He is said to move and act in an Augustinian way even by some of these scholars. As we'll see later on, that's not at all what he's doing. Now, they, they might have tried to come to an understanding like St. Basil's terms of economy and acrivia, but it doesn't happen, unfortunately. They remain wanting it all to make it into an ecclesiological stance. They cannot separate uh, the two, uh, the pastoral economy and the ecclesiology, as one flows to the other. Ecclesiology is the basis upon which the other happens, but the other does not necessarily uh, imply an ecclesiological stance when it's made. So economy does not imply something that, is, that we recognize, per se, baptism, for instance. Uh, he is said to allow validity to the more liberal view uh, uh, and to the more uh, liberal view of the West and, 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 and so on. So what they're failing to see, and the stumbling blocks are the following, from what I can tell. <clears throat> and that is a misunderstanding of the meaning of the classifications of the dissidents what we just discussed. They don't understand the classification properly, that it's only for the sake of how do we receive them. It's not a comment on them per se, uh, beyond the context of reception. Uh, A misunderstanding of the phrase, os eti ectis ecclesias ondum, the the phrase we just examined. Uh, uh, They're taking his canons out of the total context of his teaching on the church, baptism and heretics, uh, so if you see St. Basil in all of his writings and in his stance, it's unmistakable that he does not, does not adopt some other kind of ecclesiology that is not consistent with St. Cyprian and the other fathers. Uh, they refuse to accept St. Basil as a follower of his own fathers. They, they, they suppose that he quotes them only to, to reject them. And then they refuse to accept the interpretive keys of Acrivia and economy. All right, so that's St. Basil's best, and as quickly as we can do it, it's very hard to present such, uh, such nuanced, deep teaching uh, in such a short amount of time. Now, quickly, we're going to say a few words about St. Augustine, and then we'll open it up to questions. I know we're going on an hour and 40 minutes. I apologize, but I don't want to leave uh, the class without, uh, you know, all of, as much as I can give you. And the good thing is you can stop this, you can Come back to it, and you can you can see it again if you missed something, or uh, you can come back another time and finish it. Uh, the influence of Saint Augustine on sacramental theology in the post-schism West cannot be overemphasized. With regard to Christian initiation, the significance of Blessed Augustine's contribution lay in his theological thought about what constitutes valid, quote unquote, valid sacrament. So already we're in a different sphere, a different way of thinking about these things. All right, Saint Augustine's in a different. He just thinks differently about these things. It's, it's unique. 
He's not following, he's not even familiar with St. Basil to, to be able to follow him. Uh, with regard to the nature of the church, he reached the point of doing nothing less than, quote, creating a new theology of the church. That's according to uh, a prominent scholar. It was in his response to the fourth century Donatist schism that Blessed Augustine developed his ideas on, quote, validity and the proper minister of baptism. So he's thinking about it in a fairly legalistic context, all right? This is, this is where we're at. Against the Donatists' claim that they were the legitimate church of North Africa and as such could alone dispense the true sacraments, whose authenticity and effectiveness were, so they maintained, dependent upon the worthiness and moral character of the minister, Blessed Augustine argued that any baptism that makes use of the proper element of water and the proper word is valid. So there's a very, very different approach, a minimalistic thing, right? You got the word, you got the water, you got validity, according to St. Augustine. Any sacrament results from the word added to the element and becomes itself also a kind of visible word. Any baptism or any sacrament consecrated by the words of the gospel is necessarily holy, however polluted and unclean its ministers may be for Christ, not for the purity of the minister, makes baptism effective. Now, Part of that is definitely we would embrace that, that it's not, it's not based on the worthiness of the priest, but Christ who is give, gives and is given in every mystery. But what's not stated here and what will eventually dissolve over time, and those who follow the teaching of St. Augustine, is that the presupposition here is in the church. In the church, it doesn't depend on the, on the minister. It depends on Christ. Outside the church, we don't even talk about it. It, depending on anything, because it doesn't exist. <laughs> that's the that's the patristic teaching. Uh, so that's the prerequisite. So I think that's what's that's a major uh, uh, flaw here is that that's not that's that the mysteries are not understood in the context of the church alone. So they become autonomous. This is what Metropolitan Hilarion said in the beginning of the talk tonight. Holding to the validity of schismatic and heretical baptism does not, however, according to St. Augustine, mean that a valid baptism is necessarily fruitful. All right. So he says, look, the validity the, the, that it's done in this way, the words in the water exist, but fruitfulness, spiritual life, well, that's another question, he says. Augustine himself taught that although sacraments administered outside the church were valid, they were wholly devoid of the Holy Spirit. Now, people have challenged that, but that's, that's, that's right in his writings. We're going to read right after this last uh, piece here. We're going to read what he has to say in one of his letters. Now, the problem is that he, could, he does say things that can appear contradictory. And so it's hard to get a, a firm grasp on what St. Augustine uh, finally teaches with uh, all exactitude. Blessed Augustine made a distinction here between validity and efficacy, or in other words, between the sacrament or sign itself and its reality, fruitfulness, usefulness, the res sacramenti, okay? So he makes that distinction, which I don't think you, you really don't see that distinction very much in the East, among the Orthodox uh, of the time. The grace is there outside the church, he says, I'm sorry, uh, Jeffrey Wills, a scholar who, who wrote a book, a very important book on Blessed Augustine, his, his doctrine of administration of sacrament, he says the following, grace is there outside the church, latent and useless, valid but not efficacious to salvation, 
or the well-being of souls until it be revivified by the fructifying gift of charity within the fold of the church. I think that's a well-summarized, uh, you know, well-stated summary of his understanding that, yes, there's grace, but it doesn't have any fruit, doesn't have any efficaciousness, it doesn't work to salvation unless they return to the church and then it begins to work. Now, that's a unique thing to Augustine, that you won't find them talking about the mysteriological grace outside the church in other church fathers. To my knowledge and my experience, I don't see it. Uh, they talk about validity, it's one thing, uh, but actual life in Christ outside the church, you don't find that. It's only in Augustine. Even if it's latent, even if it's not energized, okay? You don't see that distinction except in Augustine. Now, I could be corrected, maybe there's one father or two, I don't know. But that's the general, uh, from my reading of it, that's what I, I've come to the conclusion. So St. Augustine says here in letter 185, and with this we're going to end tonight's talk. Uh, and then we'll pick up with St. Augustine in, in next week. He says, they, meaning the schismatics and heretics, cannot seek the Holy Spirit, except in the body of Christ, of which they possess the outward sign outside the church. But they do not possess the actual reality itself within the church of which this is an outward sign now the critic who wrote that piece about my book questioned whether saint augustine taught that and questioned whether this was a consensus of all the fathers even saint augustine teaches there's no holy spirit no grace of the mystery outside the church he says it right here the sign exists the validity but not the reality he says and therefore they eat and drink damnation of themselves saint augustine says this for there is but one bread, which is the sacrament of unity, seeing that, as the apostle says, we being many are one bread and one body. Furthermore, the Catholic Church alone is the body of Christ, of which he is the head and savior of his body. Outside this body, the Holy Spirit gives, no, gives life to no one. So all those people who, who say today, including Vatican II Roman Catholicism, we're following St. Augustine. No, you're not. You're not following St. Augustine. He refused to allow heretics, schismatics, to have the grace of the Holy Spirit under, under fruition, under, under salvation. Vatican II clearly teaches that it is under salvation. Clearly, as we'll see when we get to that in, in at Lessons 9 and 10. Again, outside this body, the Holy Spirit gives life to no one, seeing that, as the Apostle says himself, the love of God is shed abroad in the hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given unto us. But he is not a partaker of the divine love who is the enemy of unity. Therefore, they have not the Holy Spirit who are outside the church. For it is written of them, they separate themselves, being sensual, having not the Spirit, Jude 19. All right, so he says it repeatedly. And I don't think there's any room here for, for, um, for wiggling. I'm sorry. Again, I did not uh, go to the, the card here. This is the card that we should have been looking at while I was reading. So here you can see three different times. He repeats that. Now, again, there is some confusion in his writings because in other places you can, it seems that he's saying that life begins, life in Christ begins. And so there's, he's trying, I think maybe that's in the context of trying to bring the heretics and schismatics back. I'm not really sure. We have to see it in context. But here it's very clear that he holds what St. Cyprian held, as Father Florovsky said in the beginning of this talk. He holds what St. Cyprian held. He didn't overturn it. They want, they want Augustine to be overturning what St. Cyprian held. He doesn't. He explains it differently. He's very unique in his understanding. But he, he 
it, of all the people who you would say he overturned St. Cyprian, he does not overturn St. Cyprian's basic principles. Right there on the page, you can see the basic principles of St. Cyprian's teaching right there. Thank you.